Well, good morning. It is always a privilege uh, to have the opportunity to share God's Word. And in the most recent opportunities, have been giving a passage of Scripture that goes along with what the other pastors have been preaching through the Old Testament. Uh, I think that's a, a good thing to kind of unite our minds around the central focus, focus truths of uh, what God was relating to his people Israel and how that relates even to us today. Uh, in times past, I've been given about seven chapters to go through. This time I've been given a whole book. Uh, and you may be wondering, how can I do that? And uh, I say in about six hours. So I think Pastor Tim took that joke a couple of weeks ago, so I won't use that one. I'll leave that alone. But we'll be looking at the book of Jonah, which, interestingly enough, uh, does for us in one sermon basically what this whole series of Old Testament uh, sermons as a whole do, and that is giving us an idea of what God is doing through his people Israel. Hopefully that is what you see. Now, last Sunday, Pastor Charlie, you inspired me to make sure I had a, a sermon title, so I really did some research to uh, find something that was really catchy, something that would be trendy enough to hold your attention. Uh, this wasn't what I found. Uh, this is what I, the result was after looking at uh, some suggestions, no less on the Internet. Because where else would you find a good pastor or uh, sermon title than on the Internet? Uh, so after seeing that uh, some of the titles such as You Can't Run From God, okay, uh, Navigating a Life Interrupted, that sounds like a novel, right? Uh, Big Fish, Bigger God. It's getting better, right? But the one I liked the best was uh, Jonah, Vineless Sunblock. Sunblock for the stubborn at heart. Now, when we get to chapter 4, that will hit some of you. Um, or maybe on the way home that might hit you, or maybe somebody will just have to explain it to you. I don't know. But anyway, hopefully what we will learn, as you see from the sermon title on the projection, is that salvation is from the Lord. Hopefully that's what you'll get, that you will not necessarily get what the young child in Christian growth group in another church, uh, when the teacher asked, after going through the lessons through Jonah, now what have we learned? And the young girl said, to travel by air. <laughs> and I believe you will understand why I appreciate that little anecdote. No, Jonah is certainly, like much of Scripture, the object of many skeptics because of the unbelievable events that we find recorded in this short little book. Uh, the occurrences that happen. A person being swallowed and yet still surviving through being swallowed by a fish. For thousands of wicked, evil people being saved. Uh, there are, and it's interesting, if you were to do any research at all to find how many people who consider themselves to be Christian who reject such notions, that this is just a myth, this is just a story to paint a bigger picture, this is just an allegory that, you know, we really can't say this happened. I mean, my goodness, how ridiculous would that be to say you actually believed in such things? 
Maybe like the other children's Sunday school class where the youngster went back to school and was teaching or telling their teacher that they had learned about Jonah and how he was swallowed by a fish and the teacher was very cynical and it was, you certainly can't believe that and the youngster insisted on this was the truth, that this is what she had been taught and uh, that's what she believed. And the teacher continued to chide and say, well, you really can't believe that Jonah was swallowed by a fish. And so the youngster said, well, I'll tell you what, when I get to heaven, I'll ask him if he can verify that. And the teacher being somewhat of a small like saying, well, what are you going to do when Jonah's not in heaven? And she said, well, you can ask him. <laughs> that's the only two jokes I know, and that's, you know, that's, you've got them all in one sermon. Now that cynicism, unfortunately though, reflects our heart as believers towards those who don't believe what we believe. And I think that that may be something that we should be very aware of as we make our way through this book. Is it is easy, and sure, I chuckle at such a story, even though it's made up, it, it speaks truth to us, correct? That we live in a cynical world and that sometimes we just want to say, well, one day you'll know And we find ourselves just like Jonah. Don't know if you caught it or not, uh, but CNN's going to find Jesus tonight through a series of programs in which they are finding Jesus, whether he to be factual or fictional or I don't know what they're going to find. It won't be much different, I'm sure, than the History Channel or A&E or National Geographic have done the same type of studies to somehow appeal to those of us of faith and to sort of bring us into line with reason. To show us that we really shouldn't commit ourselves completely to such a notion of a God who we sing about and give our resources back to and our lives for service to Him. But that somehow we should to simply recognize that, well, there may be some truth to it, there may be some rationality that we can gain something from in our lives, but really, let's be real. Our world reflects the same culture in which Paul was ministering in, not just outside the church, but even within the church, as he talked about to Timothy in his second letter, in which there are people who are always learning but somehow they never come to the knowledge of the truth. Not much different than in Jesus' day, right? Where even the Pharisees, who Jesus continued to scold, do you not know what was written? Do you know not, do you not know the law that you've studied? The very religion that you practice? Do you know, do you not know what God has already told you? And they were the ones always looking for another sign, weren't they? They were always looking, even after Jesus fed thousands of people. The Pharisees came to Jesus and asked Him, and the Scriptures revealed to us that they were doing so just simply be argumentative, show us another sign. And depending on which Gospel writer you read, in Matthew it says that Jesus said, well, I'm not going to give you another sign except that of Jonah. 
The Gospel writer Mark, which I believe was very influenced by Peter, Jesus didn't say anything. So we find ourselves asking this question, well, if this skeptical world in which we live in, perhaps they're like the day in which Jesus lived, show us another sign. And Jesus says, well, I'm going to give you a sign, Jonah. It might be helpful for us to understand what that sign may relate to, right? It might be something that we could, as we look for not only interpretation, but also application of this short book, that the one instance in which Jesus referred to it was a way in which he was going to give those looking for a sign their sign. So who is this Jonah? Well, we're introduced to him in 2 Kings chapter 14. As we're making our way through the Old Testament, uh, more than a dozen kings have now served the northern ten kingdom or nations or tribes rather of Israel. The fourteenth king comes along by the name of Jeroboam. He's the second king named such, and like the ones before him, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Jonah was a prophet during his reign. Amos, another prophet, was also uh, living during this time. But this king, Jeroboam, was used, even though he was wicked and evil, to provide some security, some, some peace. The Assyrians at this time were dealing with their own turmoil within their kingdom. So as you know that within kingdoms, when they start bickering amongst themselves... That distracts them from the nations that they have recently overtaken so that those who they have just recently overtaken have a little bit more freedom. Jeroboam was able to capture some of the territories. As a matter of fact, he captured all the territory that Solomon centuries before had secured so that now the nation was living in a a time that they had not experienced recently. They had just been overwhelmed by another nation. Now that they're able to relax and stretch out a little bit to claim their own land, if you will. And the only reason why this happened, if you were to look, and I'll read for you so you don't need to turn there, the reason why this happened, according to Second Kings chapter 14, verse 25, uh, speaking of Jeroboam, he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of uh, the Arabah, According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter. For there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. The Lord did not say that he would blot the name of, uh, out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Remarkable. Here's a king who's wicked and evil. He's not following after God. He could not care less. He's not worried about the retribution that's going to come for worshiping other gods. Yet the Lord looks and sees His people, even though they are as far from Him as people could be, and has mercy. He sees that they don't have anyone helping them. Now, he could look at those in the two southern tribes of Israel, in Judah, 
Their kings were, eh, once in a while, they would get a good one. Once in a while, they would actually follow the law. Once in a while. But Israel, God saw that they didn't have a helper, and after all, when he, not that God had to look back at the records, he had never promised that he was going to blot them out from the, the history of mankind. And he helped them. He allowed a wicked, evil king to provide for them something that they would not have ordinarily. As a matter of fact, they could have been easily decimated by the Assyrians before, but God had mercy on them. And this is the world in which Jonah lived. Oftentimes, we, like Jonah, can find ourselves while not living in the full Spirit of God, not following after His instruction, not paying close attention to His will for our life, yet experiencing comfort, yet experiencing some relief from our enemies, can become stagnant and be content with that. The nation of Israel was experiencing God's general blessings of mercy and kindness. Not because we would expect them to have deserved it, but they certainly didn't recognize it. It didn't change anything. And sometimes we can become the same. We can live in a country that has conveniences that a vast majority of this world will ever know. We can have jobs that provide resources for our disposal that require us to very seldom, if ever, pray desperately for God to help us. We could come into church, leave church as we came in, never worrying about the state of our lost world, nor the holiness that God requires in our own personal lives. And we can become content with that because, after all, nothing's going wrong. I'm not experiencing pain and suffering, so therefore, I'm okay. And it is in that environment that we must be very, very cautious that we lose sight of who we are, And what our purpose is. God had called out a nation of people not to become content and wait until he came and established a kingdom, even though if you looked in the world of Jesus, that's exactly what they were looking for. They were upset that Jesus didn't bring it. But God had called out a nation to be a light. He chose the smallest so that they could not take credit for themselves. He chose a small nation so that he could demonstrate his righteousness, not through them, but through his servant. So that the world would know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. But they weren't concerned. Jonah, as we read through this four chapter book, which only takes, you can read this book in five to ten minutes. It's not very long, but it's very potent with what we find in it, because we find in this book that Jonah himself becomes a picture of Israel. 
He belongs to God, but we find him fleeing from God's presence. And by God's presence, we can also say he was fleeing from God's purpose. And hopefully we will understand that we cannot serve God without being in his presence. Let's just begin here in the book of Jonah, chapter 1. Hopefully you've already turned there in your Bibles. But the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. Now that's interesting in and of itself, just understanding the background, right? What has God seen in Israel? They didn't have a, they didn't have a helper. Now God also saw their wickedness, but he looked at it in a completely different way. Here he tells Jonah, arise to go to Nineveh, because their wickedness has come up before me. In other words, I can't help but see it. So you go and tell them how wicked and evil they are. And Jonah, being a faithful prophet of God, goes to Tarshish. Which, by the way, and if you don't know anything about world geography, Tarshish is not in Assyria. It's nowhere close to Nineveh. That verse that we read about our sins being as far as the east is from the west, guess what? That was, Jonah was trying to demonstrate that. Nineveh to the west. Tarshish to the east. Why did he do that? Joseph, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. If I can get away from God, I can get away from His call. Now that doesn't make very much sense for a believer, does it? Do you want to be away from God? If you don't like what He's called you to do, you do. Because what we do, like the nation of Israel did, we become content in who we believe our identity to be. We're God's people. So I can still stray from God, but yet I'm still God's child, right? And after all, it's only going to be for just a short period of time because, you know, I'm not going to live forever. Jonah makes the decision to run from God because he was not accepting of his call. So he went down to Joppa. We know he got on a ship. And again, we're reminded. He went down within the Tarshish from the presence of the Lord in verse 3. Now what we need to understand when we think about Jonah, and if we're going to understand that what we get from this book is that salvation is from the Lord, we need to understand that just like Pastor Tim and Pastor Chad and Richard, and we've all been preaching through this series, that God is sovereign in it all. And God demonstrates His sovereignty to begin with in the decree to go. There is not going to be any mission work. There is not going to be anything accomplished for the cause of Christ. There is not going to be any successful deliverance of the Word of God apart from God being sovereign to say, you're going to go and give this Word. Now, I can take my Bible and go somewhere where God has told me not to go, and I can read it to people God has not told me to read it to. I can't think of any of those places or any of those people right now. But if I was to think of that, it's not going to accomplish anything. If I go and, and preach apart from the presence of the Lord, my preaching is in vain. There must be a call to do it. 
That goes for any missionary. That goes for anyone who goes into the pastorate. That goes for anyone who is in evangelism. That goes to any of us who are called as believers in Jesus Christ to go and reach a world with the Word. There must be a call because there is a Lord sovereign over the work of the preaching. If we somehow assume that I can go where I want to go and say what I want to say for the cause of Christ without the presence of God, without His sending me, I am very foolish. And as someone who has been in the ministry of the Word for a couple of decades now, I'm ashamed to say that there have been many times in which I could verify that very thing. Man, you think those sermon titles were catchy. I've, I've had some really, just some really interesting sermons. Amy can't remember any of them. And nor should she. Because they all started with me. I found some verses that, you know what, that would really make a great point here. And I know brother so-and-so is going to be in that service. So You know, I think I'm going to address something straight to him. And I know that, and I start, and you start developing in your mind, and you start thinking, you know, I can come up with a really good game plan here. Uh, I'm not the most clever person in the world, but I can be a little creative, and I can actually rob from some other people's ideas, and you haven't heard of them, so you're going to think it's me. And before you know it, I'm trying to preach the Word without the presence of God. And without the presence of God, I don't have a call to go and do anything. And Jonah had a call. He just didn't go. Now, we know the story familiar enough, so we're going to jump around a little bit. In chapter 3, verse 1, after Jonah repents, now the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. So even when Jonah goes... It's only because God sends him. So we need to recognize that the sovereignty of God that is working over this whole idea of salvation begins with a decree to go. We see this in the New Testament as well. Romans chapter 10, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Paul doesn't just say you just go out there and start preaching. Paul doesn't say it's just merely people preaching. How will there be anyone preaching unless someone sends them? Now who sends them? The sovereign Lord who is over salvation. He uses his church. He uses his leaders. But it's through the sovereign hand of God that people are sent to preach the word so that people can hear. And when people hear, they get faith. Because faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. Right? Jesus Mentioned the same in chapter 9 of Matthew. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Send to the sovereign Lord over salvation. 
They notice that Jesus recognizes the fact that there's what? A harvest. The passage here isn't telling us to to pray for people to, to be whipped up into going out and finding people so that there could be a harvest. But Jesus, who is Lord over the work of salvation, says, there's a harvest out there. Now pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray to the Lord, who is sovereign over salvation, that He would send out laborers. Because they're few. We see the sovereign hand of God through salvation in His decree to go. But we also see it under the circumstances, because then that's the very next logical thing, right? He sends somebody to go, but where is He sending them to? What happens if it doesn't work out? What happens if they're hard? What happens if they're disagreeable? What happens if they want to uh, you know, use reason over spirituality? What happens if they have to have all these scientific arguments? What happens if I get sick? What happens if my car breaks down? What happens if the government won't let me in or out? What happens if Ebola breaks out? What happens... When I'm discouraged, what happens when my family forsakes me? Well, the same Lord who is sovereign over the sending is sovereign over the circumstances. What happens when the preacher runs the other way? (laughs) What about that harvest that Jesus Christ is saying it's over there, but the preacher goes this way? God's sovereign. He can make a storm. He can whip up the wind. He can cause waves to hurl and make seamen afraid. These superstitious men who were trying to figure out whose fault this is. God's sovereign over that. He can get them to work together. People who didn't know each other. Coming up with a plan to say, we need to get rid of something. They started getting rid of the cargo and that didn't help. And they finally found the man responsible because Jonah, once again, he had already told them, I'm running from God. How do I know that? Because that's exactly what Jonah says he told him. I'm running from God. Okay, well you're it. We're throwing you overboard. After Jonah gives them the instruction to. Now, is this a man bold in his rejection of God's will or what? Not only is he willing to run away from God, but he's saying, I'm willing to die for it. God had control over the waves and the storm. And when Jonah was out tossed overboard into the sea, God was sovereign over that too because it says that he appointed a fish. Not just any fish. So if you want to talk to somebody and say, well, I don't believe a man can be swallowed by a fish. I don't believe that either. I believe he has to be specially appointed by God to swallow a man and hold him there for three days. That's what I believe. I'm not afraid to tell people I believe in a supernatural God. I'm not afraid to talk about a God who is not only outside of nature, but the one who is sovereign over it. I don't have a problem with that. I do have a problem with believing that I can be swallowed up by, you know, a brim or a catfish. But especially designed fish made for swallowing people, I can believe that. And that's, exactly, that's all the Bible says, is it not? The Bible's not calling us to be a bunch of lunatics and freaks. 
His turn is exactly what God did. And I believe it. Because God's sovereign over the circumstances. He can create a fish. And when Jonah came to his senses and recognized who God was and gives us the verse that you find on the outside of your worship, God, that the Lord is over salvation, that it belongs to Him, God said, fish, I'm finished with you. I would like to think that there was some poor pitiful fisherman on the shore shortly after that who had had a really rough night having not caught anything because of the storm and then all of a sudden got this hook in a big fish that had just swallowed Jonah and threw him back out. And said, thank you, Lord. This is going to feed my family for a while. I'd like to think that. But it doesn't say that, so I don't. So, (laughs) the Lord commanded the fish. It wasn't that the fish was like after three days, you know what, if we scientifically look at this and look in a lab and we run some tests, that a fish can only hold a human being within his belly for three days and then he has to throw them up. It doesn't say that. I don't have to come up with some type of... I wish that that would happen so people would believe that this is true. No, it says that God told the fish, throw them up. Your purpose is finished. Now let somebody eat you. Because that's the real purpose for fish, right? Especially if it's deep fried, it, you know. Not broiled stuff. That's healthy. Right, Pastor? Okay. But not only that, when Jonah did go in chapter 4, he sits back, he's waiting to see what God's going to do with the word that has been preached now. And lo and behold, the people actually repent. The king of Assyria tells all the people to put on sackcloth and ashes. Put it on your beasts, even. Now again, this is where some of the critics will say, well, why? That's, that's unbelievable. Why would you even put sackcloth and ashes on, on beasts? Th- these are people who are backwards, right? These are pagan people who have been regenerated by... The, they don't know... The, let's just do it because we're repenting. They were serious. When we get to the point where we're so serious about repenting of our sin, where we take our dog in the backyard and put sackcloth on him, God knows we're serious. They were serious and God saw that they were serious and He said, you know what? I'm not going to destroy you after 40 days. I want to save you. And that destruction that old prophet Amos over there has been talking about, it's going to be delayed. It's coming because everybody's not going to believe. Just because you're believing doesn't mean the next generation is going to believe. But you, you're good. And Jonah sat back Are you kidding, God? Do you not know who these people are? Do you know not why I was running to begin with? These people are cruel. Let me be very delicate in what I'm about to say because we live in a world in which we're just beginning to see how cruel an unregenerate heart set opposed to the cross of Christ can be. We're just now being exposed in our very, very neat, healthy, uh, just uh, very clean world. How dirty sin can be when we see someone having parts of their body severed 
And we need to continually be praying for our brothers and sisters who face that today. We get to sit in a heated or air-conditioned room with padded seats, with well-lit environment, with the Word of God in our lap, while we have brothers and sisters who are facing that very fate because of their faith. Some people just simply because they know somebody who, who believes. But as wicked as what we've been exposed to in our day, doesn't hold a candle to the stories of how the Assyrians would treat their enemies. I don't think that in a mixed group of people like this, this is a good place for us to talk about the very things that they would do. It was that atrocious. So with that in mind, would we not be with Jonah and say, God, why would you ever? Are you kidding? These are people who you are giving your word of judgment against. These are people who deserve the worst. And you let them believe? Are you kidding me? First 1 chapter 4, it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. These people don't deserve your salvation. These people don't deserve your mercy. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were compassionate. And the last people who needed to know that were them. Can you think of anybody being honest? Be honest. Is there anybody that you can think of in your heart and soul that you truly say those people do not deserve it? Are there people living such wicked lives today? Are there people who are doing such atrocious things today that you are aware of? Are there people in the past, in history, that you can look at and say, those people deserve hell. They don't deserve mercy. Is there? Honestly? I get upset when somebody cuts me off on the highway. I get upset when somebody breaks in front of the line when I'm waiting at McDonald's. I get upset when people get stuff they don't deserve. How far off is that? How compassionate am I towards them who need Christ so desperately? But even in that, he says, You're slow to anger. You're abundant in loving kindness and the one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. I've had enough. I can't take it. If this is how you're going to deal with sinful people, I don't want to be a part of it. It's comical to us, isn't it? But Jonah was dead serious. No pun intended. 
I said it intended. I'm sorry. But it's, I, I just can't live this way. If this, if this is the type of people you're going to reach out to, if this is the type of people I'm going to preach to and they're going to repent and they're going to come to saving faith in God Almighty, I don't want to be a part of it. Just take my life now. And the Lord said, do you have a really good reason to be angry? Jonah doesn't answer. He just walks away. He left the city. He made a shelter for himself. He sat underneath the shade of it. And God appointed a plant to grow up over it. So God, once again, is over the circumstances, even beyond salvation with his servant. Here's a plant that while Jonah in his temper tantrum and his sulking is just sitting around waiting, and God even makes a plant that's large enough to provide shade in the heat of the day. I've never been to that part of the world. I've never, I've spent a little bit of time out in the desert in the West, and if it's anything like that, it's too hot for me. And I can only imagine if I was sitting out there just waiting for God to mess up or do something wrong, like Jonah was, waiting for an opportunity to say, God, I told you you shouldn't have saved those people. I don't know what Jonah was waiting for exactly, it doesn't say, but he was just pouting. And so while he was out in the heat, God provides a plant big enough to provide shade for him. And just when Jonah was about to enjoy that shade, God creates another little worm to come along with an appetite as big as that fish that ate him before, and he consumes this plant. Now he doesn't have any shade. Jonah is now crying again to the point where, God, I just can't take it. Just please take my life. And God says, so you have so much concern for yourself that when the worm takes away your comfort, you get upset. But when tens of thousands of people come to know me as the one true God, you get upset too. These are people who did not know their right hand from their left when it comes to morality. They had no concept of who the one true God was. And you get mad because their eyes are open to that. The same way you get upset because you lose your shade tree. God uses those circumstances to teach us a lot, does He not? And God's sovereign over those things. God's sovereign over His decree to go. He's sovereign over His decree over the circumstances. But praise the Lord, God is also sovereign over His accomplishment of mercy. We've already seen this in a general sense with those guys on the boat. All of those men could have died because of the storm that was brought about just to get Jonah on the run the other way. Or the swim the other way, I guess I should put it that way. We've seen it in the nation that was saved, this great city, Nineveh. We've even seen the mercy shown to Jonah. God could have answered his prayer. You want to die? I'll let you die at the hands of the Assyrians. How that? 
God could have done that and would have been just in doing so. But God accomplished His work of mercy. The God who can hurl the wind, the God who can prepare a fish, the God who can appoint a vine and a worm, certainly this is a God who can reap a harvest among the nations. But He's the one who accomplishes it. John chapter 1, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will, or the will, or the will of man, but of God. God accomplished it because He's sovereign over it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He will save who He wishes. Titus chapter 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, that same God that Jonah knew God to be, when He appeared, He saved us. Did you hear that? He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. God accomplishes His mercy. And because of that, we are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And Jonah would have been just as mad about us receiving it as he was back then with Nineveh. You know why? Because we're not Jews. We're Gentiles, just like those Ninevites were. We may not have done the same things as the Ninevites did. But we're just as much outside the gate, if you will. That's the great mystery, is it not? That that wall has been brought down in Christ. We could sit for a while and just study the book of Ephesians and understand how that all unravels. Don't have time. But He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, or, let's face it, it wasn't even by the preacher who was preaching when you maybe went forward. It wasn't your parents or anyone else. It was Him saving us by His mercy. So, sped through the book of Jonah real fast. What's our response to be? First of all, we need to agree with God's plan to save sinners. Now, when I use the term agree, I'm not saying that we should give God our approval. God, I think that your plan is pretty good. I think you're a good job, God. I think we can work with that. No. It's kind of like what I do as a manager when I'm at work. There's already purpose given. And you know what? When the CEO reigns it down to the vice presidents, the vice presidents reign it down to the office managers, the office managers reign it down to me as a manager, and I send it to my people, they're not asking, they're not asking me for my suggestions. They're not polling anyone. They're saying, this is what the leader says we're going to do. And if you want to be happy working here, then you need to get on board. God says, don't need your help. Infinite wisdom here. But what you need to understand is, I'm the Lord of salvation, and you need to be in agreement with my work, my plan to save sinners. It's a holy, a humble reverence, if you will, 
to His holy work. But we also need to be obedient to God's call to preach the gospel. I mean, after looking at Jonah's situation, do you really think it's going to work out going God's or the opposite direction from God? Do you think you got a chance? So it's important that we not only agree with what God's doing, but we need to be obedient to it and to the people to whom He has given us to go. We need to find satisfaction in God's wisdom in all of that. We may think God needs to spend some time saving these people over here because they're really pitiful and I really feel sorry for them. So why isn't God saving these people? He shouldn't be spending any time over here because these people already got enough. Not my call. There's already a harvest out there. All God says is you need to go and you need to be satisfied in your going out to do it. Just reminding you of what Romans chapter 9 says. I know we're getting in deep here, Pastor Tim, but you used this a couple weeks ago. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Why does God, desiring to show his wrath to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? Who who can teach God who knows all things? You were singing that a while ago. Do you believe it? Because he's the God who has felt the nail on his hands. Bearing all the guilt of sinful man. Paul goes on the same chapter 11 in Romans. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards, uh, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrecoverable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. The only reason why the Gentiles have received mercy is because God used the, Gent- or the Jews to, to show us. Even in their disobedience, we've seen the mercy of God. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth and the, of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Are you satisfied in God's wisdom? Are you satisfied in the way God has planned His work of salvation? Or do you find yourself like Jonah, either running from it because you don't like it or running from it because you don't agree with who He's calling? You may be familiar with the movie that came out in the past year, I'm Broken, with Louis Zamperini. He was the World War II soldier who was captured in Japan after being an Olympic athlete. He was brutally tortured just like everyone else was, but his story was very, very intense. 
And because of that, he suffered through a lot of uh, stress and anxiety. He became an alcoholic, struggled in his marriage. But a commitment that he had made as a younger person came to light in his own heart at a Billy Graham crusade. His wife became a believer. He rededicated to his life and not that his problems went away, but he was able to deal with his problems in a way that was scriptural. And he found joy in the Lord. Even to the point where he could go back to the taskmaster in that prison camp. And as he did to all of the other soldiers that he could find that were working there and told them that he had forgiven them, he tried to to get this master to come and, and hear him say he had forgiven him as well. To which the taskmaster would not make himself presentable. He didn't show up. Too ashamed, I guess. But that's the type of heart we have to have for this world. You may have been hurt in incredible ways by people in this world. You may be just intensely upset with the way people act, doing things that are wrong, things that are against the cause of Christ, things that challenge your own personal lives. But nothing has been done so great that we should forget the mercy and the compassion that has been shown to us in God calling out as His peculiar people. To be holy and blameless before God. Not in righteousness of our own have we been saved, but only by the work and the blood of Christ. So let me ask you, getting all the way back, is that sign of Jonah? What? What? Because you think, preacher, you, you skipped that part, right? Because you were, you were trying to say that Jesus only gave them the sign of Jonah. Now, what was that? Well, what did Jesus say? Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be buried. <laughs> and... Jesus, come on, uh, wait in here. That, what are you talking about? We know what he's talking about, right? He's resurrecting. Just as Jonah was preserved, I intentionally left that part out because we go right by it. We're too busy thinking about miracles. We're too busy thinking about hating people. We're too busy thinking about you know what Jonah was running from. We, we forget about the whole purpose was Jonah was preserved. To do what? To preach the Word of God. He was preserved to preach. He was, he was preserved. He was willing to die. He was willing to go a different direction. He was willing to, be, to lose his life. But God says, no, I'm preserving you so that you will have a testimony to give to the world. That's the sign of Jonah. Jesus Christ is going to be buried and the world's going to think we finally got rid of him. The devil's going to think that I finally defeated him. Uh, the, the evil is going to seem like it has won because Christ is dead. He's only being preserved. In a couple of weeks, we're going to take one day 
even though we should do it every day of life and every Lord's Day is a day in which we uh, should remember it as well. But in a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate the fact that Christ was preserved only to come out to proclaim and give a testimony to what? The Word of God. What the nation of Israel had been called out to do, Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, accomplished. So let me ask you, what sign do you still need? Is there something else he needs to do beyond the cross and the resurrection to persuade you to deny yourself? Take up your cross and follow him? Or are you still walking in another direction? God, I can get your presence at church. I can hear people talk about God there. But you know what? As soon as I leave the doors out here, I'm going my way. I promise you, if I still have life, I'll be back next Sunday. But you know what? As soon as I leave here today, that's all the presence of God I want because I'm just going to go my own way. What is it going to take to persuade you to deny yourself, take up His cross, and follow Him the rest of your life? You've got the sign of Jonah. You've already got the testimony of a risen Savior. Is there another reason that you're looking for to take the gospel to any other group? Is there something about the mercy and compassion that you have received at the cross that somehow you still don't feel compelled uh, to be constrained, as the Apostle Paul says, to go and reconcile a world to God? Even the most wicked of them all? The most undeserving of it? Is there something missing that you, you haven't gotten from Jonah yet? There's a sign there. What I'd like for us to do as we close our service today... Not quite six hours. Close. As we close our service today, I'd like to sing a song you may not be familiar with, but it's a song that's been around for a while. Isaac Watts wrote this song back in the 18th century. And if I could get the men just to kind of go through, I'd like for us, as Amy's coming to play, and she, if you will, just go ahead and start playing, I'd like for us to read through these words because the danger in, in learning a song or singing a song that you're not familiar with is that you become distracted by, well, I need to make sure I'm singing or, boy, they're really sounding bad over there. What I want you to do is I want you to pay attention to these words. And I want you to think about it in the context of Jonah in your own life. How sweet and awful, and let me explain that. You say, Awful. Uh, if you're familiar with the National Treasure movies, the Nicolas Cage character uses this phrase. People don't talk like that anymore. Um, people don't talk like this anymore. We're, we use the word awesome because somebody is really good on a skateboard. We've, lo- we've lost the whole meaning of awful, full of awe. All right? So how sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors? While everlasting love displays the choices of her stores. Walking into a room with all our hearts and all our songs joined to admire the feast. Each of us cry with thankful tongues. Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make the wretched choice and rather starve than come. Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Pity the nations, O oh our God, constrain the earth to come. 
Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see thy churches full that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. Let's go back and let's stand. We'll close our service as we sing this hymn of commitment to God and thankfulness for what we have received.